Hello and welcome to Loving God Through Loving Neighbor, a special six-part class from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thank you for joining us. Let's listen in. Okay, let's get started. Uh, All right, so uh, today is our last day on uh, looking at religious traditions. Of course, it's not in any way exhaustive of the many religious traditions that exist in Naperville or around the world. Um, but today we want to talk about the Buddhist tradition. Um, there, are all, there are many traditions that kind of spin off of the Buddhist and the Hindu tradition. So you have the Jain tradition, Sikhism draws upon it as well. Uh, Buddhism influences the Shinto tradition, which is in Japan. Um, Confucianism and Buddhism kind of combine in China today. So there's a lot of influences that we will not be able to cover. Maybe during Q&A we can. Um, but unfortunately, won't be able to cover it. But today, I want to finish on the Buddhist tradition. Um, so we're going to start, kind of as we always do, most of the class on um, the tradition itself. And then at the end, I've kind of divided the reflections on um, contemplating Buddhist beliefs through the Christian tradition. Like how can Buddhist beliefs help us think as Christians? And the other one is how can Buddhist practices help us practice following Jesus. So that's kind of the two broad categories. Okay. So let me pray and we'll start. So let's pray. Lord in heaven, I thank you for another evening we have to gather together to look at another beautiful tradition in this world. I pray that you would open up our hearts. I pray that you would make my words eloquent and understandable. I pray that this understanding would draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so most of the slides I've made small, I've put less on, but some of them do have a lot still. So, so let's start with a story. So I'm going to start with the Buddha. So the Buddha is not actually a person. It's rather a station of achievement. So in Buddhism, there have been many Buddhas, many people that have achieved the station of Buddhahood. So in our time, when we say Buddha, what we are really referring to is the latest person to have achieved Buddhahood. So it's rather it's a station or a status rather than a singular person. Um, so I want to tell you the story of the Buddha of our, our time. It's, so it starts in the 5th century BCE in the prince named Siddhartha Gautama. Uh, he's a prince in northern India. And his father, who is king, receives a prophecy that his son will be a religious wise man. And his father wants him to be a king. So in order for him to not become religious, he encloses him in the palace, doesn't let him go outside, never allows him to see anything bad or problematic. Of course, nothing could ever go wrong with this plan. So (laughs) once uh, Siddhartha reaches the age of 29, he decides he's going to go out. So he goes out, and in succession, he meets an old man, a sick man, and a dead man. Now, this is the first time he's ever according to the story, ever encounter, encountered death and sickness and the frailty of the human body. And this sends him into an existential crisis. Why do anything if we are going to die? If we are going to suffer, what is the point of pleasure? What is the point of desire? So he's stuck in this crisis. On his travels back, he sees a homeless hermit. And this homeless hermit seems quite happy. 
And it shocks him. He says, here am I, a rich, young, healthy man, and I am miserable. And here is an older, homeless man, and he is happy. What does he have that I do not? So he gives up his title, gets rid of his riches, and decides to follow the hermit and starts to practice the ways of being an ascetic. So getting rid of your possessions, eating less and less food, in the hopes that he will find the secret of happiness by getting rid of stuff, getting rid of possessions. But at some point he realizes he's too hungry to think. And he realizes, well, I can't starve myself into enlightenment, and nor can I be a hedonist and just consume to reach enlightenment. And so what he settles on is a term that Buddhism will call the middle path. That the path to enlightenment is between the two extremes. So Buddhism will also be called the middle path or the middle way. It's not extremely ascetic and it's not extremely hedonistic. It's a balance between the two extremes, one that is effective. So it will be called the middle path. And so he realizes as he has consumed some food and sitting underneath the Bodhi tree, he realizes that the answer he's been looking for is an answer to the problem of suffering. What he saw in his own life, what he was suffering, is which he marked as the problem that all humans face. And in order to overcome suffering, we must overcome our desire for change. So his realization of enlightenment is that in order to overcome the problem of suffering, we must embrace change through love and compassion because all things change. We need to release our hold on our desire from keeping things changing. Once we do that, we will alleviate ourselves from suffering and then we can be filled with joy and compassion here on earth. And once he reaches this, he then becomes the Buddha. He reaches a state of enlightenment or a state of nirvana. So nirvana is not necessarily an achievement of something that happens after someone dies. They can actually reach enlightenment and nirvana here on earth. And they keep living while maintaining this practice of enlightenment and nirvana status. So he actually lives until the age of 80. So he's, he's probably a good 40 years in this state of enlightenment and nirvana status. And then he goes around and he's teaching his disciples. So as he reaches a state of nirvana, other people recognize the state within him and they start accumulating disciples around him that want to learn his lessons. And so these are kind of the main teachings of the Buddha. The first is Dharma. Now you'll see a lot of the words that I'm going to use today I referenced last time in the Hindu tradition. However, in the Buddhist tradition, they're going to mean something a little bit different. So they have a slight tweak to them. So Dharma in the Hindu context refers more to the social moral obligations somebody has. So we talked about in the Bhagavad Gita, when you have Krishna, the charioteer, talking to Arjuna, who's the warrior, about what should Arjuna do in battle? It's really a question of Dharma. What is the right Dharma for Arjuna in this moment when he's heading into battle against his family? What are his moral social obligations? But here, Dharma is the, or consists of the eternal truths of the cosmos, the eternal reality of nature, that which holds the cosmos together. 
That is dharma. So it's not individual moral action. Rather, it's the binding of the universe. Now, this does relate to the Hindu tradition in this way. So in the Hindu tradition, when people follow dharma, it maintains the order of the universe. Disorder happens when people leave dharma. So in this sense, the Hindu and Buddhist tradition are both talking about what holds the universe together. For the Hindus, it's every individual doing her or his social moral obligations. For the Buddhist, it's not individual moral social obligations, but rather it's this kind of unseen immaterial force that keeps everything together and everything moving. So they're similar, but they're a little different. Did I skip one? Okay. So the two main areas of the Buddhist teachings are called the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So the Four Noble Truths are four statements that kind of outline the major beliefs of the Buddhist tradition. So first, life is dukkha. So dukkha, we translate as suffering, but really it means unrealized expectations. So suffering has this notion of pain usually associated with it, and that's a little bit too simplistic for the Buddhist notion of dukkha. So it is not getting that which you want. I want to be richer. I want to be healthier. I want to whatever it is. Whatever you want, you can't achieve it, and therefore you feel dukkha. And so this is the problem all humans are faced with, dukkha. However, he then diagnoses it. Okay, we all are facing dukkha. Okay, what's a diagnosis? What causes it? Desire. Right? Dukkha is caused by desire because we want something. Okay, so we all have dukkha. The diagnosis is desire. What is the remedy? The remedy is to stop desiring. Stop dukkha. But how do you stop it? You stop it not by changing dukkha. You actually stop it by changing your response to the world. By changing our response to the world, we change dukkha. And how do we change our response to the world? The Eightfold Path. So the Four Noble Truths leads into the Eightfold Path. Okay. I, had to, I, I wanted to put it on one slide. So this is, I'm sorry, it's kind of cramped. But I want to put all eight on a single slide. Because more properly, it should be listed as a wheel. So the Eightfold Path, rather, is a wheel. and It's not linear. So every single spoke goes together. When I put it this way, it has, this, it has an idea of you move from one to two to three all the way down to eight, and that's not really it. It's all at the same time. So the first one is have a right perspective. What's the right perspective? The Four Noble Truths. So first, your correct perspective, which is the diagnosis of the human problem, dukkha and desire. And then, after having a right perspective, you have right thoughts. So rejecting negative thoughts, harmful thoughts, and filling the mind with love and compassionate thoughts. But then, after the thoughts, then is speech. So having the right speech, speech that's uplifting, speech that is not harmful. So uh, most of these are getting rid of harm and moving towards positive, uplifting speech, action, thought, etc. And this leads to action, what is called ahimsa. So ahimsa is nonviolence, but it is also affirming that which is good. So if somebody gives vile speech, to practice ahimsa is to give good speech against vile speech. 
That's ahimsa. So it's not just, it's not passivity necessarily. It is making good and not causing harm. So the violence, the non-violence part, violence causes physical harm. So we don't do that. But you can verbally defend against wickedness and evil. This then leads to right livelihood. Do not have jobs that lead you into being oppressive. Or if you have a job, don't make it oppressive. Right? If you are a leader, do not oppress the people underneath you. <laughs> if you're underneath somebody, do not be oppressive to the person above you. Do, like, have a right relationship between the power structures. <clears throat> and this goes into your effort. So notice how we start kind of with these like thoughts, actions, etc., livelihood. And then it kind of moves into uh, intentionality. Right? So effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And so it's really kind of these last ones that get, a, get, get the practitioner from right thought into meditation on the self. So right effort is the practice of creating these good thoughts. But how do you actually practice creating these? You have to meditate. So meditation is a practice that Buddhists do in order to cultivate the right thoughts, the right speech, the right action, and the right efforts. But when you meditate... You don't just sit there and think about things that are good, but rather it's a focus particularly on not having judgment. So if you've ever done a meditation practice, you might hear a phrase such as, if you have a distraction, do not try to suppress it. Rather, acknowledge it and return back to your breath. What that statement is trying to say is, do not try to judge the thing that distracts you. Because if you're trying to move it out of the way, you've judged it as bad. Do not judge it. Just acknowledge that it's there and return back to your breath. So it's a practice of non-judgment and returning to focus, which is the seventh spoke of the wheel. And the return to the focus is the eighth spoke of the wheel, is meditation with intense focus on something singular. And the idea is when a Buddhist or Buddha, a practitioner focuses on something singular, this intense focus will open up deeper levels of this own person's being. Because you have now stripped away distractions, so you can uncover the deeper levels of the self. And what do you under, uncover in the deeper levels of the self? That which cause, causes dukkha. And then you can draw it out and refocus. Draw it out and refocus. And it's this active meditation combined with action and speech that the Buddhist hopes will lead them into enlightenment. So it's this holistic eight-spoke system. Now there's karma. We spoke in the Hindu tradition about karma. Karma here aligns more with, I think, how people in the United States associate the word karma. So good actions have good results and bad actions have bad results. This is more of the Buddhist understanding of karma, which is different than a Jain or Hindu understanding of karma. So it's the idea of cause and effect. So if you cause violence, you will then accrue negative kind of spiritual realities on yourself. So in contrast, you need to cause goodness, you need to cause compassion, and you need to not be non-judgmental in order to accrue good karma. That's, this is kind of the idea. And that karma is also involved not only in actions, but also intentions. Which is why the Eightfold Path 
has a number of spokes that focus on the intentionality of the practitioner. So it's not just what you do, it's why do you do what you do? And what are you thinking about when you're doing it, doing the action? So it tries to be holistic in its approach. Now, Buddhists also believe in samsara. This is the term that we used in the Hindu tradition to talk about reincarnation. Samsara, the cycle of rebirth. So karma, if you have negative karma, kar negative karma acts like a weight on the soul. Instead of the soul being released from the cycle, negative karma almost physically drags the soul back into the earth, causing it to return to the cycle of samsara. So in order to lighten the soul, you have to rid yourself of this negative karma in order to then release the soul from the cycle. And this releases into nirvana. So being released into nirvana, metaphor would be, you might have heard the metaphor, of a drop of water that falls into the ocean or salt that is dissolved into water. Right? One becomes the other without distinction which for the Buddhists, would say, they would say, is eternal bliss. Now, the Buddhists have an interesting idea of the, the life cycle of the soul. So they would say, the life cycle of the soul starts when an aspect of nirvana becomes a new consciousness. So you have this, this consciousness. It doesn't have a body. It's just a conscious spirit. The conscious spirit then gets attached to a mind, so my mind is attached to my body, right? So if I, have, if I have a mind, then when I am contemplating my own being, what I'm doing is I'm contemplating how I am different than you. What makes Alex different from the people out there? What is my mind compared to your mind? So when the spirit is connected to a mind, it becomes individualized. It becomes distinct. And then we think... My individual self is unique. But that's the problem. The problem is thinking that we are not connected or we are unique or we, and then we try to accrue things to ourselves because we think we are different than other people. And so the cycle of practices the Buddhists try to do are trying to unwind this mind-spirit connection so that one realizes that in fact we are not singular individuals, but rather... We, in fact, do not exist. There is no I. There's only the real or nirvana or reality, which is something we alluded to kind of last class in the Hindu tradition, this idea of the real or the reality. But the Buddhist tradition emphasizes it much more than the Hindu tradition. So nirvana is a state of being. Again, it's not a paradise. It's not a physical place. Um, it literally means to blow out the desire, one's desire. So this is why the Buddha reached nirvana in this life, because he quenched his desire while he was still alive. But he still lived. It's not as if he quenched his desire and immediately once it happened, he died. So you can live while having quenched your desire to then teach other people to quench their desires. So nirvana is a, a state achievable in this life, but then realized once you die. So you achieve it in this life, you can keep living, and then once you die, the soul is released from its bounded state and goes into kind of its ethereal unity with the real of all reality. Now, 
even in Buddhism, there are heavens and hells. However, heavens and hells are still part of the cycle of samsara. So gods are not super divine beings because they are stuck in the same cycle of samsara. So even the gods need to escape the cycle of samsara and even the demons need to escape the cycle of samsara. So heaven, the earth, and hell, all of that is in the cycle of samsara. The goal, which is nirvana, is outside of the heavens, it's outside of earth, and it's outside of hell. It's a place outside these three realms. And we will talk about one, uh, one aspect called Pure Land Buddhism, which has a heavenly realm, and kind of explain how they, at least they understand this concept. Uh, but at least for the Christian tradition, it's kind of a different thing, because you hear heaven, you think, okay, that's the goal, but it's not. It's an in-between state. So this is a unique concept in the Buddhist tradition. It's called anatman or no self. So in the Hindu tradition, I talked about atman and brahman. Brahman was the real. I think I stood back here last time. Brahman was the real, right? So you had brahman back here, and then you had the trimurti, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. But behind them was brahman, the, the realist real. And then we have atman. We have souls. And to escape the cycle, we must realize that our soul, Atman, is really Brahman. That I am Brahman, we are Brahman, etc. The Buddha says there is no you, there is no I, there's no individual soul. There is no Atman and Brahman. There is only the real. And that's it. There is no individualized soul. There is no eternal, unchanging being that is you. Rather, that is an illusion. We, we live in an illusion where we think we are individuals. And this illusion causes us to desire. And it's this desire that brings dukkha, and then dukkha keeps us here on the earth. So we have to release all of it. Because even our individuality is something that we can hold on to, and you have to release that. So after the Buddha died, the year 80, he then taught his disciples that what they need to follow is dharma the universal laws of the cosmos, not an appointed leader. So the Buddhist tradition, after the Buddha died, did not have an appointed leader. Rather, it was leadership through mutual agreement of the community, which worked for a while, but communities tend to disagree. Now, the Buddhist community, initially after the Buddha passed, right, it was a monastic community. It was not easy to be a Buddhist. You had to give up your, you know, you have to give up desire. That is not an easy thing to do. You can't run a business and give up desire. It's hard to do that. You can't be a merchant and give up desire. Like the Normal human life requires people to do things and then they have desires. And so it was a very difficult path. So Buddhism started very much as a monastic movement. Both for men and women. So men and women were equally accessible to Buddhism. This was equally accessible. Now, Buddhas, 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 sorry, Buddhism does have a saint, and they do have people who become Buddha-like. So when we, if you meet a Buddhist or you go to a Buddhist temple, you'll see uh, arhats and bodhisattvas, particularly bodhisattvas. So bodhisattva is somebody who has taken a vow that instead of going to nirvana, they will remain behind to help other people achieve nirvana. 
So this is something when we talk about the heavens. What did the heavens have? Bodhisattvas. People who could have achieved nirvana but remained behind to help other people achieve nirvana. And so while on this earth, they take a bodhisattva vow. They then achieve the, the Buddha status. But then after they die, they stay behind to help other people. So when you go to a Buddhist temple and you see, of course, there are statues of Buddha, but there are other statues that aren't Buddha. These are bodhisattvas. Other enlightened people that can help the Buddhist on the, on the Buddhist path. And so the community took what they call the triple refuge. So they took vows of poverty, vows of chastity, and vows of obedience to the teachings of the Buddha. So these are kind of the three foundations of the early Buddhist community. Poverty, chastity, and adherence to the Buddha's teachings. <clears throat> took on robes. They took on novices. They, after they have novices, they start establishing a little bit of a hierarchy. So you have a guru, and then you have a novice. And so you start having a kind of like master-disciple relationship building out of this community early on. Now, seniority, in fact, even today is still very important. So they mark the day and time when you become a monk. Because let's say I become a monk and 30 minutes later someone else becomes a monk. I have seniority over that person. So, you know, get in quick. Now, because of this lack of authority, there arose a couple of disagreements over which uh, they could not reconcile. Particularly the question of to what extent is it possible for non-monks to become Buddhists? What do you do with those people who are not monks? This was particularly important as Buddhism spread. Because as Buddhism spread, people really liked Buddhism. But they also kind of wanted to keep their jobs. Right? It's kind of hard to be a full-blown monastic with poverty and chastity and all the other things that like it's not going to spread that much. But there are other things that people really liked. And so could these people who are not monks also achieve Buddha, Buddhahood or enlightenment? Is that possible? And so this is really the major split between the two main groups in the Buddhist tradition. Um, so the Mahayana Buddhists would say that all people can reach saint-like status. So most, a lot of the Buddhists uh, you will encounter will probably be Mahayana Buddhists, right? They believe that all people can achieve this status. Theravada Buddhists believe only the monastic community achieves this status. But again, you have the cycle of samsara. So, you know, if you're a Theravada Buddhist and you're not a monk in this life, well, you can come back the next life as a monk. So it's not, again, we have to remember that it's not a linear tradition with regards to time. You get more chances multiple times. So from the Theravada Buddhist tradition, they don't see it as, well, the monks are holy and everyone else is not. It's, you are not born as a monk in this life, but your holiness in this life will bring you to the next life as a monk. And from there, then you'll go to heaven. So from their perspective, this is not necessarily condemnatory of people who aren't Buddhists. From their perspective, they want to try to incorporate the people who are not monks into their communities. And so... They keep splitting, keep splitting. By the 3rd century BCE, we have 18 different sects. So there's a lot, lot of them. I'm only going to focus on Theravada, Mahayana, and the, the third one, which you might know as like the, the Nepalese one, the one in Nepal, or the Dalai Lama. That's called Vajrayana. So I'll focus on that as well. So we'll just do three today. It'll be a quiz on all these names. <laughs> uh, okay, so Buddhism, Buddhism spread by... Evangelism, right? First, the Buddha wandered around northern India, 
preaching his teachings. And then after he died, his sangha, his community, went around northern India, went around Southeast Asia, and also spread his teachings. So of the religious traditions, right, Hinduism is not really kind of a missionary tradition. They don't go out and seek to convert people to Hinduism. Buddhists do. Buddhism is, it was a missionary tradition that goes out and tries to teach the teachings of the Buddha. Same as Christianity and same as Islam. Right? These are more missional movement traditions. Right, believing very strongly in the teachings of its founders and then desiring to teach those teachings to other people. Now, it was very appealing, especially to Hindu communities, because at this time, <clears throat> you had the hierarchy of the Hindu community. Right? If you were on the kind of the lowest part of the totem pole, you had to kind of get your cycles of rebirth until you reach the top part, and then you go to the, then you can be released from samsara. But now, here comes this Buddha, Buddhist guy, who's like, you don't have to be reincarnated multiple times. You can reach samsara now. So a lot of Hindus were starting to follow the Buddhist teachings because it offered them release from the cycle in this life. They did not have to wait for another life. Right? So this is why Mahayana Buddhism is called the great vehicle because it was the vehicle by which Buddhism spread. Because it could appeal to other groups that were or disillusioned with, and disenfranchised with their own traditions. And so it spread very heavily in northern India and Southeast Asia. To, into India as well, but then there's a research of Hinduism later on. And so Buddhism kind of gets pushed out of India proper and Hinduism has a resurgence. So even today, kind of Nepal and China. You know what? I have a map. I'm going to show you a map. There you go. So it starts, as I mentioned, in kind of northern India, Nepal, kind of this Tibet region. Spreads through India, spreads through East Asia. The yellow part is, the orange part is where it mainly is today. Um, so if you go, so even in China today, which is called Chan Buddhism, in Japan, Zen Buddhism, Mahayana Theravada will be in Southeast Asia, Mongolia. Right? So this is kind of the main area of where Buddhism is today. Uh, in these regions. There are some, of course, still in India, um, but not as much as, as in the other regions of the country. But So you can see it kind of starts in the middle, spreads out, and kind of, it follows trade routes. Right? Buddhism followed the trade routes, particularly the Silk Road trade routes. So it would go through these trade routes, which is also another reason why they were eager to be able to bring people from outside the Buddhist community into Buddhism, because these mer merchants and traders wanted to be Buddhists. So the Mahayana tradition allowed them to be Buddhists and to be traders at the same time. Theravadas would not allow that. And what do traders have? They have money. Right, so the traders have the money, which can then pay for more Mahayana missionaries to go on missions. So then they go on more missions to spread Mahayana Buddhism. And so there's a reciprocal relationship between these two communities. Right, the traders on the Silk Road and the money that financed the Mahayana Buddhist missions. Okay, so here's, a, here's an org chart of Buddhism. So we have the Buddhist teachings, and then the initial divide, you have Theravada and Mahayana, and this, I mentioned the Vajrayana. The Vajrayana is the one that has the Dalai Lama. So if you've heard the Dalai Lama, he's under the Vajrayana box. Um, under Mahayana Buddhism, there are a number of other Buddhisms. I will talk about Pure Land Buddhism today. Uh, it's a very popular one in Japan, but and I will also talk about Zen Buddhism. So, Vajrayana. So, if you look where it says the Buddhist teachings, Theravada, so then the Theravada are the ones that believe only the monks 
can achieve enlightenment. The Mahayana say that monks and non-monks can achieve enlightenment. And the Vajrayana agree with them, but they also, they also have extra teachings that they do that this group doesn't. Um, the Vajrayana consider themselves the um, more advanced version of Mahayana Buddhism. That's how they would see themselves, as more evolved or more advanced. Okay. Theravada Buddhists read something called the Pali Canon. It's written in Pali, so it's the Southeast Indian language, and um, these are the recorded teachings of the Buddha. So this is their text. Now again, there is not a singular text that all Buddhists will read. There are many different Pali canons. There are different translations of Pali canons. But in general, the original script and Pali of the canon of the teachings of the Buddha are considered to be the sacred writings of the Buddha. They were written much later than when the Buddha lived. But still, these are the sacred texts. So if you want to kind of point at a sacred text in Buddhism, particularly Theravada, it would be the Pali canon. That would be the sacred text. Now again, Theravada Buddhism is a little bit more difficult. Not everybody reaches enlightenment in one life cycle. You might have to be reborn as a monk. Even if you're reborn as a monk, maybe you have to do it a couple of extra times before you reach enlightenment. Now, uh, the, the monks in the Theravada Buddhist tradition themselves do not... Um, they rely on the non-monastic community for their sustenance. So part of the relationship is that the monks provide kind of the spiritual practices for the community, and the community provides sustenance for the monks. So the monks will come down, usually they're on a mountain or kind of from wherever the monasteries will come into the village, and they'll have bowls or they'll kind of receive alms of food from the community. And it's considered a blessing for the people of the community to give the the monks' food. So this is a way in which they could kind of earn good karma by giving the food to the monks. And so this is kind of reciprocal relationship. Um, the Theravada Buddhists have an interesting um, perspective on the Buddha. They believe that the Buddha is not himself a deity or a godlike figure. The Buddha was simply a human who achieved Buddha status. So in Theravada Buddhism, it's actually much more equal across the board. Whereas in Mahayana, the Buddha has a divine status. In Theravada Buddhism, he doesn't. So they see him more as equal. Um, monks take a number of vows, as I list here. So no taking of life. Do not take that which is not given. So again, for food, they have to receive food. They have to, someone has to give them the food. Um, no sensual misconduct, no wrong speech, and no intoxicants. They pursue uh, rituals to bring good karma because, again, the goal is to get rid of bad karma. Bad karma weighs down the soul. So a major focus of the monk's life is to the accrual of good karma. So this can be done through for villagers giving food to the monks or the monks receiving it from the villagers. Right? The monks receiving food from the villagers is part of their vow to only take which that, that which is given. So that also brings good karma to both of them, both to the monk and to the vill villagers. Um, the monks will host festival and festivals and rituals so that the villagers can come and do their Buddhist practices. So they are the facilitators of the religion for the community, in this sense. Um, 
burial practice. I have a picture of burial practice, I think, in the next slide. Right, so the body is put on a funeral pyre. A pyre. There are prayers and chants and water is poured on, onto the body. Um, and then the pyre is lit by the eldest son. Um, is this, this, this type of Buddhism is mainly popular in like Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Thailand, and Myanmar. So kind of, if you're looking at a map of Asia, Sri Lanka, and then there's that body of water between Sri Lanka and Myanmar. So kind of that region there. That's usually where you find Theravada Buddhism. So not Japan, not China, not Indonesia, not Nepal, right? It's mainly this kind of South, South, Southeast Asia region. So um, the picture, at least to my right, you're right, yeah. Picture on the right. So this is a burial ritual. So you can see them pouring the water over the body. Um, the picture on the top left, this is receiving of alms and receiving of food from the community. And the one on the bottom left will be part of the ceremonial rituals and practices. Um, again, there is a statue of the Buddha, but this is not a worshiping of Buddha as a God figure. It is a meditation on the Buddha to remind the monk of the Buddha's teachings. But not, not worship of the Buddha. This is different than the Mahayana. The Mahayana put more emphasis on the non-monastic community, particularly with the use of bodhisattvas. So bodhisattvas are in the Mahayana tradition. They are not in the Theravada tradition. So Theravada Buddhism does not have bodhisattvas. The Mahayana Buddhists have bodhisattvas. These are people who became enlightened in this light, lifetime, took a vow, a bodhisattva vow. Sometimes they take like 20 vows. And then after they die, they then fulfill their bodhisattva vows to help other people. And then this means that you can now have access to supernatural beings to aid you in your Buddhist practices. So this is the, the, the kind of the point of the bodhisattva. And they, will, they use the term lay sangha. So sangha in the Theravada tradition means the monks. In the Mahayana tradition, there, there are monks, but also the Buddhist community are, consists of those who are not monks. So in the Theravada community, the monks are the Buddhist community, and the larger community here has a reciprocal relationship that facilitates the monk's life. Here, the monastic and non-monastic community together are the Buddhist community. That's complicated, but this is, this, is, this is how it works. Um, so they will also make pilgrimages to sites and, and shrines, etc. But this, this is widespread. So Korea, Japan, Mongolia, China, Tibet. Um, this is a very widespread uh, practice of Buddhism. So again, most Buddhists you probably meet will be Mahayana Buddhists. Um, so this is a picture of the Buddha, right? And then the Bodhisattvas and all the Bodhisattvas back there. Um, I do not know why there's a horse. I saw that. I do not know the answer to this question. So if you're watching this on YouTube, maybe you can Google the picture and <laughs> find out. So I do not know why there's a horse in the back right. Uh, but notice also the halos, right? Halos are kind of a more universal symbol of holiness. So um, the Buddha deified and the bodhisattvas. So one type of Mahayana Buddhism that uses bodhisattvas is called pure land Buddhism. It's called Pure Land Buddhism because they believe in a heavenly realm called the Pure Land. Hence the name. Easy to remember. So they believe that this guy 
named Amida Buddha, Amida Buddha, while alive, took a number of bodhisattva vows. After he passed, he then went to establish a pure land where the followers of Amida Buddha could pray for Amida Buddha's blessings. He could bestow upon them grace so that when they die, they are reincarnated not on earth, but in his heavenly realm of pure land. And in this heavenly realm of pure land, there is no dukkha. Therefore, it is easier to achieve enlightenment. So on the earthly realm, you are accosted by dukkha. It is hard. In the pure land realm, there is no dukkha. It is easy. So this is not relinquish the follower from the cycle of samsara. Instead, it just makes it easier to leave the cycle of samsara. So the followers of Pure Land Buddhism pray to Amida Buddha for his grace, for his blessing, because you cannot earn a spot in the Amida Buddha's realm. The Amida Buddha must descend and give you the grace to then come to his realm. And once you are in his realm, then you are free to escape the cycle of samsara. This is a very popular practice in Japan. A lot of Japanese Buddhists are Pure Land Buddhists. In fact, there's a lot of Pure Land Buddhists in the United States as well, because a, a lot of Buddhist uh, practices came from Japan to the United States <clears throat> as well. There we go. Wait, did I miss one? There we go. Okay. The other type of Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, I want to focus on is called Zen Buddhism. So Zen Buddhism starts in China as Chan Buddhism. So in China, it's Chan Buddhism. It then crosses uh, the body of water between China and Japan. And in Japan, it becomes Zen Buddhism. So in Zen Buddhism, it is the idea, this, this is a contrast to Pure Land Buddhism. So Pure Land Buddhism is the idea, there's a bodhisattva that descends to give you grace. Zen Buddhism is enlightenment through rigorous mental and physical practices. Pure Land Buddhism is enlightenment through the dispensation of grace. Zen Buddhism is enlightenment through rigorous mental and physical practices. So both are enlightenment, both are just kind of opposite ends. Grace, rigor. So the Zen Buddhist practice tries to promote the immediate awareness of enlightenment. In other words, have you ever tried to learn something and you're trying and you're trying and you're trying, you can't quite learn it, but then all of a sudden it just clicks. Try again. There we go. Clicks, right? It just clicks. And so this is what Zen Buddhism is trying to do. It's trying to put the Buddha, the Buddhist, into practices, physical and mental, that stimulate the mind until enlightenment just clicks in. And they have various means by which they try to stimulate the mind to then jump into enlightenment. So the achievement of enlightenment is not something that gradually happens. It's something that just happens all at once. And you can't quite predict when it's going to happen. So it's spontaneous, if you will. It's spontaneous. It can be done through rigor, but at some level, you don't choose when it happens. So the practitioner doesn't have a full choice of when they reach enlightenment. They could just keep practicing until enlightenment happens to them. 
So when we talk about like the Shaolin monks, Shaolin monks are Chan Buddhists. Right? This, the, if you think about Shaolin monks, you think about very intense physical practices. Well, the very intense physical practices of the Shaolin monks are partnered with very intense mental practices for the purpose of stimulating enlightenment. That, that is why they do these physical practices. Right. Now, Zen Buddhism in Japan uses something called a koan. So koan is a story or phrase that's intended to confuse the listener and to stimulate enlightenment. So you may have heard one, what is the sound of one hand clapping? That's a koan. If a tree falls into the woods, does it make a sound? That's a koan. Or this one. One day a monk walks up to Budai and asks, what is the meaning of Zen? Budai drops his bag. How does one realize Zen? He continues. Budai then takes up his bag and continues on his way. That's the lesson. That's it. Contemplate. So it's intended to confuse you. So wait, how did he answer the first question by dropping his bag? And how did he answer by picking up his bag? Was it an answer? Was he ignoring him? Why did he ignore him? That's an important question. But if he did answer, what does the answer mean? And so it's this kind of perplexity is supposed to prompt the mind to think and think and think and go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Similar to the idea of meditation, where meditation is going more deeply into the self in order to root out desire, these questions are designed to go deeper into your own probing questions, not to find out more about the story, but in fact, you find out more about yourself in the process of trying to figure out the question. So it's not actually giving you an answer. It's a practice of self-revelation. So the last one, the Vajrayana, or Tibetan Buddhism, is called the diamond vehicle. So the diamond is the most fabulous, brilliant hunk of carbon that we have. And they see themselves as the most advanced type of Buddhist practices. So they say, yes, we have the Theravada, and we have the Mahayana, and we have other things too. So what is particularly unique about the Vajrayana practice is the use of gurus, or singular guides. These other practices, you can have multiple monks, but in this practice, it is a distinct guru-disciple relationship. And the disciples aren't monks, so they can still be lay persons, but they have a specific guru that they follow. So it's much more of a master-disciple relationship that's not strictly monastic. So you can be a trader, a merchant, and also have a guru in this tradition. Now, you start with moral disciplines, and it, this is also has a very clear ladder of progression. So you start with the moral disciplines, which kind of maps onto the Eightfold Path, right thought, right speech, right, right action. And then you receive instruction in the Mahayana doctrines. So we're going to get you up to the Mahayana doctrines. And once you've uh, understood these doctrines, you are then taught the more advanced Vajrayana doctrines. So what are these doctrines? Well... They are the tantras, the mandalas, and, well, the lay people don't use it, but the monks use the Book of the Dead. So, tantra, the tantra doctrine is, you ever seen the yin and yang symbol? Okay. Yin and yang symbol is, resonates with this tantric approach to the universe. It's this idea that the reality in which we live in comes from the interplay of tool, two complementary but dual forces. 
which tend to be labeled male and female. We see this also in the Hindu tradition. If you remember with Shiva and his consort, where she was, where Pavarti was the power of creation and Shiva was the maker. But Shiva needs Pavarti because she's the power. Shiva, you can't make anything unless you actually have the power to make something. So male, female forces in the Hindu tradition, the Vajrayana tradition also kind of picks this up and brings it into this tantric practice of male-female forces as the essence of the cosmos. The other, another practice they do are called mandalas. So mandalas can be in the form of a rug, in the form of flowers. Sometimes they make these through sand, very intricate sand uh, art. And they are geometric shapes that are made for the uh, for meditation. So you meditate on the shapes, on the geometric shapes, and by meditating on the shapes or by meditating on the figures, it draws you deeper into yourself. Um, I think I actually have a picture of a mandala. Yes, this is a mandala. This is a mandala of the diamond realm. So notice the geometric shapes, the squares, and you also have the, there are figures in the middle there, so the Buddha and Bodhisattvas in the middle of the figure as well, the different colors. All of these have special meanings for the Vajrayana practice. So they will make these beautiful mandalas and then they will meditate. It will aid, it's an aid in meditation practices. But this is unique to the Nepalese or Vajrayana Buddhist practice itself. The last one that's unique is the Book of the Dead. So Buddhists, Vajrayana Buddhists believe that when somebody dies, there's a moment where the soul has left the body and has not yet reattached itself to another physical body. And so in that intermediate moment, they will then read from the Book of the Dead in order to try to prompt the soul to remember that it in fact is not, well, it doesn't exist. It in fact does not need to individualize itself in a body. It should release and go back into nirvana. So the Book of the Dead is this prayer, set of prayers they read over someone who has just died in the hopes that the soul will be released from its cycle of rebirth. This is a uniquely Vajrayana practice. Okay, some reflections. So, things of the Buddhist belief that I think we can reflect upon. What is suffering? I think the Buddhist idea of suffering is very interesting, especially when we think about it as dukkha. So we say, Christ suffered on the cross. Well, we tend to think of suffering as, okay, it was very painful, it was very traumatic. But what if we think about it as dukkha? Christ, because on the cross, Christ took on the sins of the world. So the sins of the world are not just suffering. The sins of the world are all the wickedness and evil and all the corrupt desires of everything. So seeing Christ as dukkha, or Christ on the cross as taking on dukkha, I think actually expands the power of the cross. From just painful suffering to now taking on all of these sinful desires and corrupted intentions of humanity and creation onto Christ's self. And also, what does it mean for us to suffer as Christians? Because sometimes, especially us in this Western context, uh, there's a, a term um, political scientists, social scientists use now called WEIRD. It means, um, so it's an acronym, W-E-I-R-D. So W means Western, so we live in a Western context. Educated, compared to the rest of the world, we are highly educated. Industrialized, compared to the rest of the world, we are very industrialized. We have roads when our, toil our toilets flush. We have electricity 24 hours a day. Rich, compared to the rest of the world, we are all very rich. And democratic, we expect democratic norms in our political systems. 
So we are weird. So as people who are weird, when we think about suffering, we tend to not have the same type of physical pain and oppression as other people. But what would it mean to think about suffering as dukkha? That the suffering, perhaps we actually are afflicted with even an even worse form of temptation and sin because we then rely on our own money or power or wealth. And these are temptations of our desires. And so rather than seeing just suffering of Christians as a physical thing, rather suffering is the gap between my desires, which are me, mine, and I, and the fact that I cannot achieve it, and how that takes away from what is truly my soul, which is the image of God, which desires to worship the divine. And so Dukkha can help us realize, oh, I am putting too much weight into my own desires. This is a kind of suffering. It's not painful, but it's a type of fallenness of humanity in that sense. And in this way, it can help us deepen our understanding of, of sin. What about anatman, the idea of no self as Christians? This might be a little weird, right? The idea we have soul. We, we as Christians believe we have souls. We believe our souls will be in heaven. But I think it's also interesting to think of anatman in the sense of all things are created through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, and for Jesus Christ. Right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and was, word was with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was, was with God and the Word was God. And all things were created through the Word and for the Word. Hmm. Okay, that means you and I were created through the word and for the word. That means these fake plants were also created in the word, through the word, and for the word. In fact, all things are created in the word and through the word and for the word. So what does it mean to, differ, to really, should we at some level see a resonance between ourselves and creation? And that ourselves and creation were created in, through, and for Christ. And so I think this can kind of help us understand creation care. That we should care for creation. We, in fact, are not simply separate and we are, we are the spiritual beings and this is just stuff that we use. But rather, this has a spiritual reality. The inanimate stuff has a spiritual reality. And we have a spiritual reality. Why? We were all created in, through, and for Christ. And in that sense, we are all connected to Christ. And therefore, there must be a reciprocal relationship of care. So I see this kind of Buddhist notion of anatman pushing us back into this more deeper Christian doctrine. Our practices. Well, meditation. There are lots of Christian meditation. You can get a Christian meditation app. There are Christian meditation books. There's tons of Christian meditation. You name it. As I tell my students, there's something about the fact that God created us in a certain way where breath connects to the mind and the body. So Christian monks have done breathing exercises for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is not new for the Christian tradition. So meditation and breathing is not new for our tradition, but rather it has been forgotten by our tradition. And so the Buddhist practice of breathing and meditation can actually help us resource the deep truths of our own tradition, which is the ability to focus on, the, on not just ourselves, but on God. Right? In a society where we are so distracted, especially people my generation and younger, I just pick up my phone and I can just start doom scrolling through TikTok. Doom scrolling, by the way, which just means you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling forever and ever and ever and ever. So TikTok or Facebook and things are flashing before your eyes and you're watching TV and you have this and this and then commercial and this commercial and everything is just moving and moving and fast-paced, fast-paced, fast-paced. 
Where's God in all this? When do we actually stop our frantic lives and return back to the well source of God? And meditation is a wonderful way to do that, even if it's like five minutes or one minute. Before each one of my classes, I actually have all the students meditate for five breaths. And at the beginning, they all kind of look at me quizzically. And after a couple weeks, if I forget, they then clamor for me to lead them through breathing meditation because they like it. Which is good because I need it too. It helps, it helps me as well. But it's always interesting for me to see how much my students, every single one of them, loves this breathing practice. Oh, maybe not everyone. But if they don't, they don't tell me. So <laughs> the ones who like it, they do tell me. Um, so there's something about the way God created us, our bodies and breath and mind to work together. And finally, the Cohen. I think there's something really intriguing about thinking about through questions, not necessarily for the answers, but the practice of thinking through questions as a model for self-understanding. I think there's something beautifully deep about that. So realizing that when we have questions, these questions perhaps reflect more upon ourselves than the object we're, or the idea we're questioning about. And I think that's a good lesson on own, our own personal Christian humility. So, that is it for Buddhism. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. This has been the Loving God Through Loving Neighbor class from Knox Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our missions and ministry, visit us at knoxpres.org. That's K-N-O-X-P-R-E-S dot org. You can join us for worship in person or watch our live streams every Sunday morning. Thanks, and see you next week.